Well, good morning, friends. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad to have you here with us this morning. It's a different kind of Sunday. If you're a guest with us this morning, there's a few different things that aren't happening every week here all the time, and that's to have the choir and have some hymns, have the organ. It's just a neat thing to kind of breathe new life into some of our older traditions and just celebrate the heritage that is here. If you are not aware of it, there are five generations present here every Sunday morning. Five generations. Uh, that is literally probably the only place that that's happening this morning in Western New York, or at least the local church has got to be the only place that that's happening. That's the only place that that happens really in any of our lives. There's not really, other than maybe the Thanksgiving table, a situation where that's going to happen. And so we have a very unique opportunity uh, each week when we gather here together. If it's your first time this week, boy, I'm glad you're here. Uh, there's a couple of you, I see a couple of faces. It was your first time last week, and boy, am I glad you came back, uh, because last week was also a little bit of a different Sunday. Um, for those of you who are here, last week we had to go downstairs because our boiler failed. And so uh, we all met downstairs in the dining hall, and that was a very different Sunday as well, uh, in that uh, we all kind of gathered down there, and people were running for chairs and slinging chairs together, and the sound team was getting things set for down there, and it was just a different kind of Sunday. Uh, but really, the, the overwhelming uh, review that I got back from most of you was, man, it was just so good to do something different. It was so good to sit in a new spot and sit with people I don't normally sit with, and it was just so nice. So as a matter of a poll this morning, would you raise your hand if you sat in a different spot today than you normally do? Raise your hand. Hey, that, that's pretty good. Basically, as I'm working up my notes and putting that together in my mind, I'm thinking everyone loved the fact that they sat in a new spot. And then all of us come back and drop right back into the exact same seat some of you have sat in for 57 years and counting. We all believe that change is good for everyone. We'll raise our hand and we'll say, I think that change is what we all need. And what happens is when that change starts to affect us, we get a little bit uncomfortable. A few weeks ago, we also were dealing with a power outage in the area and, and our services got changed around a little bit because of the windstorm. Do you ever remember this? The windstorm about two weeks ago? Uh, we got shingles in our back uh, building out there that have blown off and it's made a big mess out there. And uh, we had power at my house was down for a full 24 hours. Some of you had even longer than that. It, it was inconvenient. Uh, in our neighborhood, on our street, uh, all of our power lines run through the backyards of all of our houses. I know that's not everyone's neighborhood, but that's the way ours is set up. It was a good idea at the time uh, because that meant that uh, out on the street, the front of the houses looked really nice, and the back where all the wiring goes and stuff, that's out of sight, out of mind, until you're out of power. <laughs> because all of a sudden now, each house, house by house, the guys who come, the power company comes, and they have to walk through every single backyard, set up a ladder, climb up to the top, go back to the truck for their equipment, back and forth, up and down, and it makes it 24 hours before you can get power back when you should have been able to get it back a lot sooner. If we voted right now on my street, I bet you it would be unanimous that we need to change that. We need to bury the power lines underground so that they can't be messed with again, so that we don't have an ice storm or a windstorm that messes with the power. And we would all agree, and we would all vote in favor of that until the backhoe backs up your driveway. Because change is important and change is good as long as everyone else is changing. Sitting in a new spot in the service is really good unless someone is sitting in your pew. 
When we were in South Carolina, there was First Baptist Church, Charleston, South Carolina, and it is literally the first Baptist church in the New World. It was the first Baptist church here in the colonies. And so, in those seats, there are still families at the end of every pew, uh, there's a door with a key to the, to the end of the pew. And, and, and often many churches did this as a fundraising tool. They would, they would purchase their pew. But this church actually had keys, and they still have keys where the family owns the key to the pew. That is their pew, 100 years, 200 years later. Boy, those people are really awful, aren't they? <laughs> Digging is inconvenient. Digging is messy. You start digging into someone's backyard and it creates a mess. This morning, I hope that I dig a little bit and and mess you up a little bit. That's kind of the plan. And it's not because I'm just a cruel and evil person. It's because God's Word is leading us in that direction today. We are in Romans chapter 6. We're in this sermon series called The Reign of Grace. And if you were with us last week, uh, Brian was speaking downstairs and talked about uh, Adam 2.0. So Adam 1.0 is the Adam that we read about in the Genesis chapter 1. And, and we find our way through Genesis, we read his story of the first Adam. When we get to the New Testament, uh, Paul talks about this man, the Adam 2.0, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, because through the first Adam, sin came to all men, but through the second Adam, Jesus, salvation comes to all men, and it's accessible to all. And so we go further there as well. We're going to be moving through. The last point that Brian made was uh, we're talking about the difference between the reign of death versus the reign of life eternal life lived abundantly, abundantly. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, will you get out your Bibles or they're in the pew in front of you? Uh, that black Bible, it's a New International Version. I'm in Romans chapter 6 today. Romans chapter 6. And as we made our way through uh, last week, I'm going to use a transition verse that gets us to where we're going today. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says this, yes, Adam's one sin, sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So it's comparing Adam 1.0 and Adam 2.0. And then verse 20 says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. Then you go into chapter 6, verse 1 is where we're starting today. What shall we say then, Paul says, as we dig in further, as we go further with this, he says, what will we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Don't be foolish. That is ludicrous talk. You must be tripping. That's what Paul is saying. I say that normally in regular conversation, as you know. It's a matter of time before it happens again, Paul is saying. Grace is necessary. Grace is purposeful. Grace has its place. And, and in looking at those last two verses of chapter 5, you would see that the more the law was broken, the more that sin occurred, the more that God shows grace. And so, therefore, should we conclude that we should just sin all the more so that grace would abound? So that's foolish. It's just as foolish as me thinking, you know what, it's a good idea for us to have a power outage so that we can see how good the power company is at returning power to our neighborhood. 
How foolish is that? We are living on borrowed time. When we live that way, we are waiting for the next shoe to fall. Uh, We're using the analogy this morning, like a dead man walking. Like a dead man walking. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 gives us an analogy that I think will, will help us as a dead man walking. Many of you have seen the movie The Green Mile or any other illustrations having to do with a man being on death row. Uh, they, they say that this is a common thing. I, I've not been in a, a jail cell and, on death row, but that someone would walk down the hall chanting, dead man walking here, dead man walking. The illustration that is being given there is this person is on death row. It's only a matter of time. It's only a little while before they may sit in this jail cell for a few days, for a few weeks, for a few months, maybe a few years. But every step they take, every moment they have, they are a dead man walking. Sometimes this term is used to talk about someone who's about to face an unavoidable loss and they don't realize what they are about to walk into. A similar analogy is the idea of the walking dead, which is similar but a little bit different. This is like a science fiction approach, which is like the zombie apocalypse, like that type of thing. And it's the same principle and its its basis is that there are these beings that are dead, but they're walking around because of some type of magic or some type of power. It actually comes from a Haitian kind of voodoo uh, culture that, that comes out of that, that kind of builds this idea that there's, there's this walking around as if you are alive, but you're actually dead. When, when used in this way, this metaphor kind of sees that there's, there's something about loss and there's, there's something about dying that is supposed to take something away from you. Robert Louis Stevenson, he's the author of The Strange Case of Mr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He said to have attended church one Sunday. He returned home and he wrote in his diary, I went to church this morning and I was not greatly depressed. An ad appeared in a newspaper some years ago that went something like this. Wanted, a housekeeper, a companion, must be a good churchwoman. They must have good references. They must be a cheerful Christian, if that's possible. Where in the world did we get the idea that Christianity is a dull and boring thing? That we would be walking around like dead people? Where did we get the idea that to have religion in our lives, to have faith, become a Christian, is to become a bore, to be sad, or to become frustrated? Where did that idea come from? There's a commercial that showed in the Super Bowl this year. It's a Honda commercial for, for a, a, an electric car. And, and it shows all these different vehicles driving down the road. They're the vehicles that are, are painted with all these uh, signs on the side of them that just say, meh, or ugh, or blah. And it shows people driving in their cars going, meh, 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 meh. Have you seen this commercial? You know what I'm talking about? Blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden... There's this sporty little car that comes zooming through, the Honda whatever. And you're supposed to get excited. Why? Because the rest of our vehicles, particularly in this electric hybrid genre, are supposed to be boring, boring little cars. But there's this snappy, exciting little car that turns everybody's heads. So even in popular culture, there's this need, there's desire of we're walking through life dull, boring. We're walking through without any life. You see, reading the book of Acts, not the way the early church lived, friends. 
<coughs> the early church. Uh, re- read some of the words that they talked about these people. People were amazed at what was happening. They said, they, they must be drunk. There's something going on there. They're, they're, there's something, they're, they're crazy talk. They're, they're, they're moving in together with each other. They're exciting. They're upside down. This first century Christian church is, is running all over the place, helping people. And they're moving in together so that they can serve one another. And they're experiencing some extraordinary things. They're enthusiastic in their faith. They're doing some tremendous things. They're even sitting in different seats on a Sunday. Verse 2 says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are those who are dead to sin. How do we keep living in it any longer? There's a dead man walking here. Dead man, dead woman walking. Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we've been united with him in a death like this. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should be no, no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We are a Baptist church. I don't know if you knew that, but Randall Church is what we use as our website, but Randall Memorial Baptist Church is our full name of the church. We are a Baptist church. And so we should dive in. We should focus. You say, oh, he's using a baptism analogy. We should pay attention to this. Paul uses as an illustration of the special union between God and man. In the New Testament, specifically about baptism, we find three different types of baptism mentioned in the New Testament. First, there's a water baptism. That is the baptism that we see in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, when we, we see John the Baptist. And he answered all of the people that were around him. It says there in John chapter 3, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist, uh, I got an email this week from one of you. We were talking about the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was to call people to repentance. And before Jesus Christ was baptized, it was still a tradition that Jews would use. And specifically, John the Baptist was using to call people to repentance. That there was this outward display, this water baptism that would demonstrate a life was changed. That someone was walking in one direction and turning around and walking back 180 degrees in the opposite opposite direction demonstrated through water baptism. That is what John is doing out in the wilderness. And as he is doing that, he is calling, he said, I'm baptizing you with water, but uh, what, what, there's a guy who's coming whose straps of his sandals I'm not even able to, to baptize. Continuing on in chapter, in Acts, we read about a spirit baptism. When he's staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tells uh, the disciples, they says, wait here, pay attention. Uh, John the Baptist was baptizing with water, but you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell in you, and you will see a whole new life (coughs) that opens up because of that. And at that point forward, we see in Scripture what we know as the Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit moves into the lives of believers like you and me. 
At the moment that that happened, all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer inaccessible. He's accessible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we find this third type of baptism, the baptism of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, the body is a unit, and though it's made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. So the New Testament gives three different words or three different descriptions or three different types of baptism, water baptism, spirit baptism, and baptism into the body of Christ. Now here in this passage, remember, Paul is answering the question, can a believer go on sinning so that grace may abound? And his answer is what? Absolutely not. We cannot because we have died, we have been buried, and we have been risen again with Jesus Christ. And therefore, too many, uh, we, we live a new life. So if you are a Christian, there should be a noticeable change in behavior. There should be something noticeably different about you because you are a new life. There must be a change. There will be a change. There will be a change of heart. Because baptism in all three of these forms, which we experience in a regular uh, life of a new believer here in our church 2,000 years later, we experience all three of these things. It is all an outward expression of an inward change of the heart. And so in that, I know I've covered a lot of ground there for you really quickly, but we've got three fill-ins that might help make sense out of this for you. So if you've got that white sheet of paper, here are your first three fill-ins that I'm going to take you through this morning that will give you a little bit of understanding on that. Romans chapter 6 verse 3 says, So don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized unto his death? The fill-in is this, because he died, we all died. Because he died, we all died. Baptism is this expression of this, is that we are buried in likeness of Christ. The second feeling is this, because he was buried, we were buried. Verse 4 says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism unto death. And then lastly, because he was raised, we are raised. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you're here on a Sunday and we have a baptism as part of the service and we've got a couple coming up soon and I hope that you're here those Sundays, what we do is we share that person's story uh, via video usually because most people are not real talkative when they're chest deep in water with a microphone. That's not always the best time to be able to get someone's story. So we'll shoot that video a few days ahead of time to be able to say, this is my life before Christ, this is what happened when I met Christ, and this is my life as I see it through Christ's lens, through His eyes. And we show that video on the screen, but then we go back to the baptistry, and we baptize someone, and we we take them down into the water and bring them back up as this expression, this outward expression of the inward change that's already happened in their lives. And when we do that, we're demonstrating that when Jesus died, we died. This person died. When he was buried, we were buried. But when he was raised, we are raised to walk, as we say, in newness of life. And Paul is using this illustration that we see regularly here, that we as followers of Christ ought to be (coughs) familiar with and be able to talk about uh, and articulate fairly well, because this illustration is really what happens in each of our lives. Buried to walk, raised to walk in newness of life. 
in John chapter 11. You can turn over there quickly. Keep your finger where you are right now. I just want you to turn over real quickly. John chapter 11. I'm going to kind of summarize what's going on there. But if you know this passage, John chapter 11, we learn about the death of a man named Lazarus. Lazarus is a close personal friend of Jesus. When he's in his, in his ministry, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is very sick. And for whatever reason, Jesus does not respond very quickly. He takes a few days. And while he waits and does not go to his dear friend Lazarus, Lazarus gets sick to the point that he dies. Jesus shows up days later, four days after he has passed away. Four days after he has been put in a tomb. Four days after he, the, the service has already happened. But what happens if you know the passage? Jesus comes and he, he raises him from the dead. He goes and he speaks and he says, take away the stone from the front of the grave. <coughs> take away the stone. And he, and he calls out to the earth, Lazarus, come out. And his friend comes walking out of the grave after being there for four days. In the King James Version, it's a particularly fond version for me because as he goes to the grave and they take off the, the tomb, the stone from the front of the tomb, the King James Version says, we can't do that for his body stinketh. <laughs> he was dead, friends. He was dead and rotting corpse in the grave. And Jesus goes and he speaks, Lazarus, come out. He prays before him. He says, as, as I do this, Lord, as I, as I perform this miracle, let them see you through this. So he is quite literally, Lazarus is, a dead man walking. Jesus wakes him up from his sleep. That's what this chapter talks about. He tells his friends, oh, he is sleeping. I need to go wake him up. Do you think people ever accuse Lazarus? after being raised from the dead, of being dull and boring? Do you think Lazarus was ever accused of being a boring person to be around? No. I think every time someone saw Lazarus, they said, wait, 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 you're that guy. And what's Lazarus's response? Yeah, I guess so. You heard right. That's me. I have an idea that everywhere he went, everywhere he went, Jesus had raised this man from the dead, and excitement was all around him. We know that this is the case because the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day hated Jesus because of this. They were going to find a way. They were going to plot to kill Jesus. Verse 45 of chapter 11 says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, but some of them went and they had told them what Jesus had done, and the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. So what are we accomplishing? This man is performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. The Romans will come in and take away our place. So we've got to put a stop to this. Why? Because Lazarus is talking about the fact that he was raised from the dead. It's exactly like the description that Paul is giving in Romans 6 concerning a Christian's new life. This man was dead, and now he was what? Alive. 
Verse 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism unto death, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. We may to what? Live a new life. Paul will spend the next few verses, he's going to coin the phrase, alive from the dead. The Christian life is a resurrected life. It is a new life. It is not a confining life of cramptment. No, it is a life of freedom. The Christian life is not about restrictions. It's not about frustrations. The Christian life is one about truth and excitement and genuine fulfillment. The problem is this. You don't actually mind being the dead man walking. You don't actually mind it. You don't actually believe that that's a problem. And I can share it with you, I can share what Scripture teaches again and again and again. And maybe, maybe I'm not a great communicator, so I miss it. So then Brian will share it with you, because he's a better, he'll get through to you. But you don't believe it. You don't believe it. And, and the reality is this, Paul's readers, Paul's listeners didn't believe it either. So he goes on further. You see, think about Lazarus. When Jesus calls him out of the grave, he comes out, and the first thing is he steps out into the sunlight, and Jesus says to do what? Take the grave clothes off of him, set him free. And to continue this illustration, if you can imagine Lazarus a week later, two weeks later, a month later, Jesus comes up on him, checks in with him, saying, Lazarus, I haven't talked to you in a while. Uh, you haven't been tweeting lately. I'm not sure what's going on with you. How's it going? And he finds Lazarus sitting on a bench somewhere, starting to wrap his ankles with the grave clothes. How foolish would that be? Lazarus, what's going on? Well, I actually don't mind these grave clothes that much. They're kind of comfortable. You know, I got used to them. I was in them for four days. Verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When I give that example of Lazarus, it's ludicrous. It's foolish. Friends, stop returning to the patterns of this world. Stop wrapping your legs in grave clothes. Stop wrapping your arms. Stop, stop wrapping yourself in the trappings of this world because you have been crucified of them and set free of them. You are a new creature. You are a new life. You no longer need those grave clothes anymore. Stop binding yourself with sin nature. Stop wearing these clothes. Friend, church member, family member, stop it. Stop it. You look ridiculous. Many of you have seen the, the Bob Newhart skit. It was a Mad TV skit. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, he's a psychologist. If you haven't seen this, you, you should look it up later. Please don't look it up now while I'm speaking. You can look it up on YouTube. It's Bob Newhart's this routine where he's a psychologist, and he tells the lady coming in, he says, you know, really, I only charge $5 a session. It'll be five minutes or less. If we go further than that, it's free, but I doubt we'll go further than that because we'll just take care of the problem right here. And she shares some of her concerns in her life, shares her phobia, her largest phobia, her largest concern is she has this fear of being buried alive in a box. And he looks at her, 
He says, really? That, you're afraid of being buried alive in a box? He says, has, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box before? She says, no, but just, just thinking about it gets me nervous. And he leans across the table and he says this. What's he say? Stop it! And then she responds, she says, I, I don't like this at all. All you're doing is telling me to stop it. He says, okay, well, let's talk about some other things in your life. She says, well, I, I'm bulimic. You know, I, I put my finger down my throat. And he says, stop it. That's crazy. Don't do that. And just goes one thing after another after another. Stop it. There's a few counselors in the room. They will tell you this is not the best counseling strategy. <laughs> and you know what? The reality is, is in our life, sin is stubborn. Life-dominating sins are not as easy as just stopping it. But you know what? It's not your job to stop it. It's God's job. My God, He's surely alive. And it's His job to stop it. John chapter 11, verse 25, this same passage of Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she says. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And Jesus addresses the problem, the friend who is dead. Jesus takes care of it. Our Heavenly Father never simply says, stop it, knock it off. Even to the worst of us, even though you think they're going to be buried alive in a box, you know what? He says, you know what? Let's talk about this. He knows we can't change on our own because we have this sin nature. We need a living Savior who died to give us mercy, who lives in us and gives us grace in times of need. The Word willingly became flesh, we read in John chapter 1, and moved in our neighborhoods to be with us and among us because we can't stop it on our own. If we're able to say no to one type of self-destructive behavior, we basically will shift over to a different type of self-destructive behavior. I've spent in the past some time in the recovery community, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, doing ministry in that community. And oftentimes, many people who, who break away from alcohol will replace that thing with some other thing that's not quite as bad, perhaps, but it's some other thing. That's why alcoholics drink copious amounts of coffee, ridiculous amounts of coffee. Alcoholics generally chain smoke cigarettes, so they've, they've stopped alcohol. Great, right? They've gotten away from alcohol. Alcoholics, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, th these men and women oftentimes will get addicted to games at a ridiculous level. Gaming, uh, uh, gambling, different things like that. They're, they're, they're setting aside one addiction for another addiction. And yes, there's some health and some improvement in the one area, but it's not overall fixing the problem, is it? Because it's not your job, it's not my job to stop it. We are physically unable to do so. So what's the solution, friends, for the dead man walking? Simply, it's our God at work. He is working. There's a couple fill-ins for you. Through Christ, the kingdom comes. 
Verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that he will, we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery or dominion, some of your translations say, over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Death no longer has dominion over Jesus Christ. Jesus reigns king of the kingdom. And Jesus in his ministry shares this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like what? Like a mustard seed. The smallest, all he needs is the tiniest bit of faith. He says, I can work with that. I can deal with that. I can handle that. <coughs> the kingdom of heaven is all around us. What's the solution for the dead man walking? It's our living God at work. Through Christ, the kingdom comes. I'm going to rattle off a few of these right quickly. You with me? Through Christ, the battle's won. Through Christ, I'm not afraid. Through Christ, I'm free indeed. Pick up verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death into life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but you are under grace. Friends, sin still has its appeal, even to those who are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Being identified with Christ in his death so we are freed from sin does not mean that we are now sinlessly perfect or that sin no longer pulls and draws on us, that we're immune in some way, that we've been vaccinated in some way from sin. No, sin still has its appeal and sin nature still pulls on us. Believers of the longest uh, time frame still have an impulse towards sin. But remember this, the battle has been won. When Jesus died on the cross for your sin and for mine, he died on the cross for your sin at its worst point, at its worst day. It could be this afternoon, it could be next year, it could be 50 years from now. Jesus died for all sin because all have sinned. This is a spiritual truth that you must believe. It's often in opposition to how you feel in that moment. This is a spiritual truth that you must believe even if it is in opposition to how you are feeling in that moment. Your identity is no longer found in sin. It is found in Jesus Christ. Too often we think of sin as, as this thing that is just out there that's, that we can manage, we can control it. The first time that we see sin show up in Scripture, the devil is talking to Eve and he tells her, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to have happiness and fulfillment? That's a good personal goal, isn't it? And he draws her in. It's presented as a gift. It's presented as this good thing that would assist Eve in her quest for happiness. But Paul personifies sin here in this chapter as an evil tyrant that will destroy you. It is a cancer in your body that you cannot allow to stay. You cannot allow the smallest amount because it will take you down. 
I saw a video, uh, I got a link to a video this week of a guy holding up a shark. He had just caught this shark, and he's holding it up as a trophy shark on the news. The local news was reporting, and, and, and this is the shark that he had caught. And while he's doing the interview, guess what happens? The shark turns and bites him on the shoulder. That, that little itty-bitty shark was a problem. And sin is not dormant. Sin is active. It is a tyrant that wants to take you down. But Paul says here that you are an instrument or a weapon of war against the enemy for righteousness' sake. Rest assured, you have the tools necessary to fight and combat the enemy. You need not be afraid. John 16 says, I have told you these things so that you may be at peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Philippians 1, 6. What's the solution for the dead man walking? Well, it's through Christ the kingdom comes. It's through Christ the battle's won. It is through Christ, and I will not be afraid. It is through Christ that I am free indeed. For sin shall no longer be your master. You're not under law, but under grace. This morning is a matter of illustration. I just have these bookends because that's the way that this is kind of set up. So there's bookends at the beginning. He says, shall I sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And he builds this argument of, of death into life, being baptized, right? Being baptized with Christ from death into life and being raised again. And at the end he says, the, the sin no longer has control over me. Sin is no longer has any power or strength over me. But no, we are no longer under the law of sin and of death, but we are under grace. As the band comes up this morning, in closing and thinking through what's going on this weekend, this, this weekend in March is a pretty important weekend for many of you out there. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of things to get excited about. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's maple syrup weekend here, friends. So my family, I'm the fifth generation on the family farm. This is pure maple syrup, America's, nat America's natural sweetener. Used on pancakes, French toast, cereals, warm biscuits, steamed rice, not done that, ice cream, apple pie, or as a substitute for sugar. This is interesting too. Should syrup mold, simply skim it and bring it to a boil. <laughs> this elegant maple syrup has been carefully packaged by Mapledale Farms, Claude C. Wilson and Sons, Warden Road, Delavan, New York, 14042. This is, this is my family's business for a lot of years. And there's something about maple syrup or this time of year that so, so if you've never made it or you've never heard about who makes it, you, you walk around the woods like a fool carrying a bucket and picking up sap and bringing it back to the thing. You don't, you don't need to do that anymore because there's all this other equipment, but that's how we still do it on the family farm because we enjoy to abuse ourselves. And so in five-gallon pails, you go out and you bring all the sap in, and my father loves to tell the story about this big mud puddle. This time of year, out in the middle of the woods, you can imagine there is a, a mess out there, a muddy mess. And he loves to tell the story of me as a kid walking through the woods, and he points to this rut, of this muddy mess there, and he says, don't walk over there. 
You're going to fall in the mud. Just walk around. Carry your bucket. Get sap from somewhere else. Just, just stay away from it. And he says it was like, like the thing had its own center of gravity. That he just watched me walk around the perimeter and just gradually just get sucked in, trip, and fall on my face into the mud puddle. For many of us, as filthy as that location is, it's the way that we get sucked into sin. Totally unnecessary. The other reason why I bring up maple syrup is because there's something about this time of year where new life is being born out of something dead. The way that God created our earth, the way that it changes seasons, the way that something new comes out of something dormant, something that doesn't look alive at all, all of a sudden has new life and new buds. And specifically with maple syrup, the sap starts to flow and we turn it into something beautiful and something delicious, something you would never buy in a log cabin jar. Hopefully this morning, as the ushers come forward, Mario's already asked you to write something down in a connection card this morning. If you're here today and you realize that you're a dead man walking, I pray that you would also realize that it's totally unnecessary. That Jesus Christ died for your sins and he died for mine that you've been baptized into a full, abundant life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, and yet shall he live. Friends, dance, walk, skip out of here this morning, knowing that you have new life in Christ. The song we're about to sing is a song, it's an old hymn. We've redone it a little bit, but it's an old hymn. This is our Father's world. And He's made this world so that we can see the new life that's coming, the new spring that is here. We see new life all around us. Do you see new life inside of you? Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we've been called to a new life. Lord, challenge us to take steps. Drop that connection card in, in the offering plate. Pray for someone we never prayed for before. Embrace someone we never… Lord, what is it that You called us to? Give boldness to take those steps today. Lord, if it is to give financially for the first time, and that's the challenge out there before us, Lord, I pray that someone would do that this morning and do so abundantly with life and excitement in their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use something as simple as maple syrup today to challenge people to live an abundant new life in you. We know you're at work. We trust you to do the rest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.